Hello and welcome back to the Bentley Priory Museum podcast. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by Tim. Hi Alex. Hi Tim. We will be continuing with the theme of the Blitz to tie into the current Sempre exhibition at Bentley Priory Museum, Memoirs of the Blitz. This episode is called Life Under Shelter. Today we will be looking into different ways people would have found or been sheltering during the nightly air raids. Although we are also giving this episode a slight Battle of Britain theme so that we can bridge the historical narrative of the two events. We are also joined by John Shear, who is an enthusiastic member of the Royal Observer Corps Association Heritage Team, who will give us some background into the roles the ROC would have played during the time. So Tim, I'll hand over to you first. Thanks, Alex. Um, perhaps put the Battle of Britain in perspective first. Um, Battle of Britain has to be seen in the context, really, of German preparations for invasion of the United Kingdom. It was necessary for the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, to establish air superiority over the proposed invasion area in southeast England and the Channel. The battle is deemed really to have begun in July 1940 with attacks against ports and shipping on the south coast. Then the Luftwaffe's main effort, and here you'll have to pardon my German, uh, Adler Angriff or Eagle attack um, in August against the Royal Air Force. This involved attacks on coastal radar stations and airfields in the southeast with wider operations, including a major attack in the northeast on the 15th of August. By the end of August, the attacks on the southeastern airfield were bringing great pressure on our, the RAS fighter command, but then came a change in German tactics. Early in September, Hitler gave permission for reprisal attacks on London. Interestingly, saying provided they weren't terror attacks against residential zones. There was some disagreement amongst senior Luftwaffe commanders as to the best way to continue to wear down fighter command, uh, to continue attacks against airfields and infrastructure, or draw fighters into the air by attacking London. Goring, at the head of the Luftwaffe, decided attacks on London would begin and the first heavy daylight raid occurred on 7th of September, and attacks took place over the coming days, with a, a large raid on the 15th of September being severely mauled by fighter command. And that, of course, is the day that we now celebrate as, as Battle of Britain Day. On the 17th of September, Hitler postponed the invasion indefinitely, effectively ending the purpose of the campaign to gain air superiority. Daylight attacks on London continued, though, as did attacks on other targets, such as aircraft factories. But gradually, the Luftwaffe reduced daylight attacks by bombers and introduced missions by high-flying fighter bombers. OK, Tim, that's great. And you mentioned there the 7th of September, and I know that's obviously a specific date that is important to the Blitz. And... People often talk about the Battle of Britain and the Blitz as being separate events, but it sounds like they were actually connected. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, it's, a, there's, it's an interesting interweaving, actually. Um, a Luftwaffe night bombing campaign had begun early in the summer of 1940, 
that, though it wasn't integral to Adler Angriff, the Eagle attack, but part of a longer term blockade plan initially. As part of this, for example, Merseyside suffered four nights of bombing in, in late August and early September 1940. The daylight campaign against London, which began on the 7th of September, was accompanied by night attacks, which from that date took place on 57 consecutive nights and continued then throughout the winter of 1940-41. As the Battle of Britain drew to a close, the night blitz grew in intensity with attacks clearly not just on, on London, but other major cities across the United Kingdom. OK, and so with this, of course, people would have started uh, having to shelter. But I, I think before we go into the sheltering, uh, this would be a good place to talk to John Shear, who uh, is a member of the Royal Observer Corps Association heritage team and he can give us more information about what would have been happening with the ROC at the time. The uh, Observer Corps was formed in 1925 and uh, and from an aircraft uh, plotting and identification role um, probably most people know it best from the, uh, the Battle of Britain. But, of course, if, as they started from 1925, there was a big pool of part-timers, as they were then, um, who became absolutely ex experts in being able to identify aircraft and uh, to track them. But um, when the war started, um, the Observer Corps was called out on 21st of August, and they manned their posts and ops rooms. And it's the ops rooms which uh, perhaps don't get mentioned too much, um, but they worked continually day and night until 12th of May 1945. And um, by 1940, there were 16,000 full and part-time observers uh, manning these posts. And when we think about the Battle of Britain, most people think um, Spitfires, Hurricanes, and often radar. Um, but many TV programs and books, um, when they mention radar, they, they miss out a key fact, uh, and that is actually the radar that we had um, only looked out to sea. It could only get out to about 100, 150 at the very, at the very, very max uh, miles out to sea. Um, and really very, very limited on what he could do with height. Um, it couldn't obviously identify what kind of aircraft there were. And certainly, um, once the aircraft reached the coast of, of England, of course, it didn't keep on the same track or the same height. And there was only one organisation uh, in the whole of the um, UK who were able to actually identify where the aircraft were, what height they were, which way they were going, uh, and uh, and all the other key facts that the RAF uh, needed to to uh, to know. And uh, obviously, that was also at night as, as well. Now, one of the things the difference between um, RAF operation rooms um, and the RAF and observer corps ones was that. The 
observer corps actually in their ops rooms, as they were called, uh, plotted every aircraft movement um, over, over UK. So even you know, ladies delivering Spitfires and meteorological flights, etc., got, got plotted and recorded. But the key information, and only the key information, got passed to the RAF. Um, so this is all really part of the clever downing system of filtering things. So we, um, the RAF were bombarded with, with duplicate information all the time or old uh, in, information. And each post had a post instrument. And the post being about six to sort of ten miles apart, sort of, sort of overlap with them. And using this instrument, binoculars, and key, key, key to this was their skill, um, they, uh, they could work out the height, which was very important to the RAF. They, they wanted to, didn't want to fly under um, the attacking aircraft. They wanted to come ideally from behind and above. Um, they could give the RAF the, uh, the actual position, so it got plotted directly onto a um, plotting table, not just coordinates, gave me the exact square. Um, how many aircraft there were, of course, whether it was friendly or not, um, and, uh, and also the uh, details of what the aircraft were, and of course where they were going, because as, as one post uh, was was giving the information of where, what was happening to a, to a particular raid or, or aircraft. The next one um, had their binoculars out um, and were ready to, to carry on the track right across the country until, of course, the RAF uh, um, went up and, uh, and defeated them. And from certainly the, uh, the effect on the Battle of Britain, was that um, Group Captain Sir Hugh Dundas uh, later said uh, that the ROC was a vital factor in the winning of the, of the Battle of Britain. Now I say ROC Royal because in recognition of uh, the role of the Observer Corps in the Battle of Britain, uh, on the 11th, 11th of April 1941, His Majesty King George VI granted the royal title to the Observer Corps. Uh, we were lucky in the fact that uh, in the whole of World War II, the Observer Corps was the only unit to be given uh, a royal uh, warrant. And also, I must add that in September 1941, there was another very important fact uh, where women were introduced to the Corps on an equal basis uh, to men. And even right up to the very, very end, when we were stood down in 1995, this was always the case. There were no different roles for women or for men. Everything uh, was equal. Now, I did mention that we were manning these posts um, right up to the to the end of the war, when there were thirty thousand uh, um, people doing this, sixteen hundred posts, thirty nine ops rooms, that um, it was done at night as well. And what would happen is on the 
plotting table that they had for them on the instrument, like a circular plate. There was a five mile radius mark on it called the sound circle. And within that five miles, the observers were expected to be able to identify um, aircraft as whether they were friendly uh, or, or German aircraft. Their key skills, of course, was their hearing, their ears. Yeah, because unless it was, uh, uh, you know, moonlight and they could, uh, they, they were very, very lucky, they, they couldn't use their binoculars. But the different aircraft engines made completely different sounds. So the sound of a Rolls-Royce um, and the sound of, of the German aircraft were very, very different. And of course, they were acutely um, well trained to be able to recognise the difference, and obviously had, had, had much experience of, uh, of doing this um, many, many times. Uh, and could even, of course, with the with the with the sound, get an approximation of perhaps what height they were, which was very, very approximate, of course, but also how many there were. The difference between a lone aircraft and 50 aircraft and 100 aircraft um, was very, very different. And again, this was key information that went uh, to the RAF. Um, also, never, I don't think ever proven and never official. Um, I've heard stories, particularly from a colleague in Scotland, who said that uh, some posts um, used to get a little bit of additional help. And that was by some people occasionally volunteered um, who um, had had got poor sight, that therefore they could not be able to join the, uh, the forces, or, or they could have a very, very limited visibility. But of course, their hearing was far more acute than anybody else. And they'd go along in the evenings um, to an ROC post and offer to, to help with, with the, the identification um, because these, uh, the, these people um, could, could perhaps hear something earlier um, than, than the other people there. So there's a, 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 an unofficial fact. Um, but of course, it, that may very well be true. Always great to, to listen to John. Uh, a real um, depth of knowledge there about the Royal Observer Corps, the Observer Corps as it was at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, w with the threat, then the reality of the bombing of civilian areas came the need to take shelter. Official policy was informed by a principle of dispersal trying to avoid large numbers of people sheltering in one place to avoid in turn a significant number of people or the chance of a significant number of people being lost in a single incident, um, both in terms of the pure loss involved, but also obviously potentially the effect on civilian morale of that kind of thing happening. Um, People's experience of sheltering from air attack obviously would, would vary widely, depending on, in, at least in part, on the type and location of the shelter they used um, at its most 
primitive, the shelter could be the cupboard under the stairs, cramped, uncomfortable, dark, and house cellars were used. And actually, um, steel fittings were produced to help reinforce them and, and, and made available to the public. But I gather, Alex, in your interviews and discussions with um, people who were children, actually, at the time, you came across quite a few examples of, uh, of sheltering. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And almost what you're describing there, the cupboard under the stairs, kind of throws up this uh, image of Harry Potter almost, uh, <laughs> if you're linking it to life more present day. Um, but in actual fact, uh, one of my interviewees, uh, Gerald, and his brother and his family almost uh, did carry out this uh, Harry Potter kind of routine every evening and night. Um, they would go under the stairs... Um, he spoke about how his dad um, got some palliasse mattresses and crammed in there for him to uh, lay on and uh, attempt to sleep. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how well they all slept. Um, but, you know, this this was uh, very much at the start of the Blitz and the attacks on London. Um, yeah, he, he really spoke about how he sort of remembered that and uh, his mother would uh, put some socks under the pillows for him and, you know, this all that kind of thing that... In a way, it kind of sounds quite sweet and quite sort of uh, adventurous, uh, especially as a child. But obviously, what was going on outside was a very uh, different matter. I mean, Gerald also spoke about one time when he was sheltering there. There was, you know, a big uh, bang outside and that, you know, there was some uh, bombs dropped on his street. And uh, there was also an incident with um, an incendiary bomb and he, uh, you know, went to have a look outside and, yeah, and I, I remember him talking about how the windows of the house had blown in and so, you know, you start to really understand that, you know, sheltering really was uh, for a purpose, you know, and at the start of the Blitz, not everyone, of course, was prepared. So, you know, places like Under the Stairs were the safest places to go but then obviously you move into other types of shelter and even Gerald himself um ended up having a, a Morrison uh shelter but um on, on the topic of Morrison shelters um June who I spoke to she uh with her sister and her family they used to uh sleep under a Morrison shelter and she used to and she told how she used to with her sister, pretend that they're dogs and they're in a cage under, you know, this table. Um, so it kind of starts to throw up these sort of vivid images almost of how children interpreted um, what was happening. Obviously, for adults, it was a lot more sinister and severe. But as a child, you know, as children do, they turn everything into a game. Um so yeah, obviously you know we had Morrison shelters, and uh, which was essentially a steel table in the house uh, to shelter beneath, which provided surprising uh, efficiency actually. Although interestingly, um, June mentioned that later on in the war, her dad opted to use a uh, pool table instead, uh, saying that it would be a lot safer. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that was just uh, to. For his own uh, enjoyment, or if his uh, pool table actually would have been uh, more supportive than a Morrison shelter, who knows? Um, but then, of course, you've also got Anderson's shelters, um, 
you know, they, I mean, maybe Tim, you might want to talk a bit about Anderson and Shelters before I continue. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's interesting, the kind of children's response to those two fairly basic forms of sheltering in the house. I suppose from a child's point of view, um, it might be strange staying under the stairs or strange sleeping under what appeared to be a table, but you were at least in familiar with familiar surroundings with your family. You still had a degree of warmth and comfort. Um, so yeah. yeah, perhaps from a child's perspective, that's, that bridges the the kind of chasm between frightening and and an adventure or yeah. you know, no, an adventure true. in place almost yeah but yeah, uh, yeah uh, um, Anderson shelters then we're talking about outside and and you know leaving uh, immediate hearth and home mm. um, Anderson shelters again a family shelter constructed in the back garden backyard. Um, using corrugated steel sheets and then covered in earth. Um, actually, then, be interesting if you have any people who recall that, because you can imagine that might be a little damp, a little cold, um, and you're no longer in that security of, of your home in, in a kind yeah. of psychological yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, a story springs to mind, actually, from uh, two sisters I spoke to, uh, Lillian and Eileen. Um, you know, they spoke about how their dad had to, you know, make this uh, Anderson shelter in their garden, which, you know, it's since sort of mentioned that it was quite a DIY uh, kind of thing, you know, uh, each family, if they wanted to do it, they kind of, um, you know, would have done it themselves um, to protect their family. And uh, yeah, that they, they spoke about how you know it's cold and damp and used to get very uh flooded at times and you know they'd have to sort of uh, get water out of the shelter and and i i believe they said that the next door neighbors one was even worse so the next door neighbors used to end up going into their shelter and you know you, you can kind of it sounds quite comedy like really but you know in essence you know that was kind of what people were dealing with and it's important to remember as well that the Blitz starting in September, you know, th this was going on through autumn and winter months. It, you know, it's not like the summer where it's relatively dry and warm. Um, you know, so you had people outside where it would have been raining a lot and they, you know, they were quite exposed to the elements in a lot of ways, even if they were in a type of shelter. I mean, it was never designed to be a house or, you know, a place of safety. So, well, a place of safety in a sense, but not safety as in like uh i suppose protected from the nature um but going on from that as well you know thinking of sheltering outside um another gerald that i spoke to obviously a popular name back then um he he spoke about how um he he went to a community uh shelter in a playing field um and his experience um become a lot more dramatic in a way you know he spoke of how one Saturday evening he was uh, in in the shelter he was doing his homework and a bomb landed directly um, either beside or above um, where he was sheltering and uh, obviously everything uh, sort of caved in and he, he you know he was injured not severely but you know 
experienced that so you know it kind of puts into perspective yes okay the shelters are there to protect but they're not you know 100 percent uh safe and you know he spoke of how then the rescue teams come and you know took him out and you know he kind of remembered being in this hospital he was away from his family he didn't know if his family were alive and safe or anything until the next day when he was reunited so you know it's quite a uh, chaotic uh you know crazy sort of experience as a child to be uh put through um especially when you are in a place that you're supposedly meant to be safe in um but obviously that's not the case but then Tim, I mean, that, that goes on to sort of other sheltering, such as in the underground uh, mm. stations. Do you want to give us some detail about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it it's interesting when we use the word shelter, you kind of get the impression that that's a, a safe haven. But clearly, above ground shelters or shelters within or beneath buildings couldn't really protect you from a, a direct hit or a very near hit in some cases. Um, you know, the, the maximum protection they afforded was against kind of splinters and you know, um, things flying away from uh, detonations close by rather than actually protecting you from the bomb that's sort of just above you. Um, and yeah, pu public shelters took, took many forms um and it's interesting when we talk about those you know in contrast to the to the family shelters um basically then you're sheltering other and there were some community shelters as as, as you just mentioned uh, but other than those you know if you if you were outside and you'd simply had to go to a public shelter you're no longer with necessarily people that you know particularly you know as a child you're likely to be with your, your mum or your dad but um the shelter is going to be full of people that perhaps you don't necessarily know and you may be there for several hours um so it's quite a contrast there i think between experiences shelter particularly sheltering when you do remain safe um and sheltering and remaining safe with a bunch of strangers i think that's worth thinking uh, thinking about that all these years later um there were above ground brick and concrete purpose-built shelters for when you know for public shelters in the street buildings including civic halls shops railway stations uh, with suitable spaces were designated as public shelters and their entrances were clearly marked. Hotels and restaurants with basements would often use these as shelters for customers and other people. Schools would have shelters. Um, I remember playing in and on the ones in the field at my primary school that were still there in the 1960s. Um, one of the things the government was very government of the time was very uh, kind of cautious about was the provision of what were called deep shelters shelters which were much deeper in the ground and were likely to protect you from the bomb that was above you um I, we could spend a podcast talking about why they felt nervous about that uh, but clearly um initially the, there wasn't that enthusiasm for for the provision of deep shelters and it's interesting that perhaps the most well-known 
lasting images, particularly from London and sheltering, are of tube stations being used to shelter in. Um, say at first that wasn't encouraged, but they became really well used and gradually better organised. You know, at the start, they're just people coming together and sleeping on the platform. Um, what about toilets? What about washing facilities? Not there to start with, but gradually, as there is this acceptance that people will be using tube stations, um, then things start to get better organised. And obviously, though they're much safer, it could also be very crowded, noisy. You've got a huge mix of ages. And, you know, you've got the, the tube line next to you. Um, and, you know, in some places, some cities' caves were pressed into service as shelters. Thinking services shelters, you know, think how that's going to be. You know, there are no facilities in a cave when you when it starts. Um, but again, even those gradually become much more organised with some facilities in them. Um, so, Alex, again, you had some really interesting examples of people sheltering sort of in place at, at home and, and very locally. Have you got any? Did you speak to anyone who had that experience of, say, the tube or some other crest into service shelter? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, George, who you might remember from the first uh, Blitz podcast, um, him and his twin brother, um, they used to shelter in an underground station in Tottenham Court Road. And um, yeah, he he told me some, uh, you know, very funny stories about how, uh him and his twin brother like for instance the toilets once they were opened and that was being manned uh you know one of them uh would go to the toilet and then the other one would go and because they're identical twins you know there was the the guard or you know the person on duty at the uh toilets was in, in like saying oh you know you've you've already been to the toilet like why are you back and you know they're like well no that was my twin brother and then they'd have to get the other one to like prove that they were actually twins and um yeah you know there's there's stories like that and but then there is the side of it you know where they spoke about how you know people literally having to step over them because you know the tubes were still working so you know you you kind of have an image of how wide a tube platform is you know some of them aren't particularly uh very big so you know you've got a load of people sleeping there but then you've still got people going about their uh, daily uh travels so you know it's, it's quite um quite a chaotic uh environment to be in and, and noisy and not particularly safe in other ways although safe from you know the sky above um yeah but Having said that, you know, it, like you said, Tim, it's, it's those kind of images that are kind of lasting now. And, uh, you know, I think what we've seen in, you know, more recent years and uh, especially what's happening in Ukraine now, um, you know, it's the underground stations and, you know, those kind of deeper places to shelter that are actually providing the best uh, facilities. So um, although maybe not back then, favorable i think you know obviously uh with the knowledge that has been learned and is being learned in times of conflict those probably are the best ways of sheltering yeah it's a really 
interesting you know some people would see it's a kind of technical subject but it's quite an interesting kind of social psychological um area to study you know how how people mm. not just kind of survived this experience but got through this experience was yeah yeah well thanks for that it's nice yeah. nice for you to share those uh those recollections it is important that we we continue while we can to um, collect people's memories of the challenges they faced yeah no absolutely and i think you know as mentioned as a more of a topical thing of what's happening now i think it's really important for well anyone but you know especially uh, younger audiences to be able to learn about what happened in you know the country that they lived in in the past and how you know that got through it so you know it can help on an educational level uh you know understand what's happening in other parts of the world and that you know it's possible that things will get better as well so i think um by sharing these kind of stories and the all history accounts it's uh very yeah it's just so important to keep those stories alive to help history of you know what's happening now and the future and you know to learn about the past so um yeah you can visit memoirs of the blitz it's still at bentley priory until mid-december um again you know i'd encourage you to take your family uh or if you're on your own then you know please do talk about it after you've visited because i think as i've mentioned there it's just very important to continue those stories so yeah i think that's about it for today and uh thank you tim as always for your historical context and also thank you to john for his uh, contribution to this episode um we'll be back next time where we will be continuing to talk about sheltering and uh, life in the blitz but on a wider context um of england and the uk so yeah, until next time, thank you for listening. Take care.